Welcome to the Bards FM podcast. This is Scott Kesterson, and tonight you're listening to A Conversation with Wano Sabin, Part 1. This war is real. Fighting is everything. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Tempt not the righteous man to draw his sword. Conviction, righteousness, ruthlessness. To understand tolerance, you have to understand the line of intolerance. War is the teacher, soldiers are the students. They become the bards of war. Good evening, patriots, and it is Tuesday, June 28th in the year 2022. Tonight we have a really good interview with Wano Sabin, who's been working hard on the election fraud issue. This is part one of two parts. The second part will air tomorrow night, where he gets into more details and just a different set of things we talk about tomorrow night, more about the state of the country and the state of the republic. But tonight you're going to get to hear more details around the election fraud issue, some of the backstory on some of the things that have been going on in terms of the organized crime and a lot of other typical one-type discussions, which are good. Before we begin, make sure you're taking good care of your wealth. We're in a critical time right now when we have to make sure we preserve our hard-earned wealth and do everything we can to make sure that the coming storm, which is very unpredictable, doesn't take away what we've worked so hard to have. Patriots, we have been witnessing the economy slowly go through a death spiral, and the Fed has boxed itself in. The economy is in dire straits, and thanks to a loose money policy, there's no end in sight. Apparently, you just can't spend trillions every year without repercussions. And now, in an attempt to play catch-up, the Fed is raising rates and plans to do it seven more times this year. We're already starting to see the ripple effects in the housing market as people's buying power diminishes. What are you doing to protect your money? Have you considered what could happen if the stock market continues to fall or worse crashes? Don't wait until that happens. Take some of your profits from the stock market now and solidify them with gold from Birch Gold. Throughout history, gold has maintained its value better than any other investment in the world. So text BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, to the number 989898. Again, BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, to the number 989898 for a free zero-obligation info kit on holding gold in a tax-sheltered retirement account. Again, text BARDS to 989898 and secure the gains from the hard-earned capital that you have. Join the thousands of Happy Birch customers, the countless five-star reviews, and an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau. Birch Gold, they're professionals, they're some of the best in the market. So again, text BARDS at 989898 to protect your future with gold. And before we begin tonight, I want to play a short piece. It's about two minutes. It's Wanda Sykes, who's a Hollywood actress of some notoriety that I have no idea about, other than the fact that she's self-proclaimed a gay black woman, I guess, with a child. But I want you to hear this piece because this kind of sets the whole stage of a mass misunderstanding of our nation and the arrogance and the way the left thinks things should be. Pay attention to how she frames the fact that about a democracy and how she feels that those places where most people live, New York and California, should have all the say in the way the country works. It's a very important perspective to understand. How are you doing? How are you doing? I'm 
a black gay woman and I have a daughter, so I'm not doing so well right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm a little salty. You're a little salty? I'm a little salty right now. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We'll sprinkle a little yeah. salt. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put some flavor it on here. It just sucks, man. It, it, it really does. I mean, you know, it's like the, the country, it's no longer a democracy, right? I mean, we're, it's, no, it's no longer majority rule. No, certainly no, not right? in the Senate, certainly yeah. not in the representation it's, of the it's, Supreme it's Court. Not, yeah. It's not, it's no longer majority rule. And, and I mean, it's like the, these judges that just, I, they, they basically lied when they were, you know, being, during their confirmation hearings, right? right? Yeah. Especially Kavanaugh. Yeah. Can you be a Supreme Court justice and you just and you just lying? You know what? They had their fingers crossed or something or what? I mean, mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's just it's just a bunch of horse. Mm-hmm. It really is. Yeah. Well, <laughs> last stand up. Go ahead. Wait, no, please, ma'am. No, it, it, well, to me, it's like the problem is that middle stuff. It's, it's those states in the middle, that, that, that red stuff. Mm-hmm. Why, why do they get to tell us what to do when the majority of us live out, you know, New York, California, and we're paying for all this crap, really? I mean, right? Yeah. We, we're footing yes. the bill. Well, that's, that's the union. It's, it's yeah. supposed to be representative democracy, but it turns out to be minority rule right now. Right, right. But if we fit in the bill, you know... And, and, and like California, if it were a country, be what, the, like the fifth largest, yeah. fourth, fifth largest economy. So if, you know, if I'm fitting the bill, know your position. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you, know, you know, for real. Like, look, if I say, hey, let's go out to dinner, you don't get to pick the restaurant. Just shut up and eat. You can see here the absolute gap in understanding. And I think this is, in her behalf, she's either too dumb to understand it or she's being coached on what to say. Both are probably the same end result. But we've never been a democracy and we've never been majority rule. Those are two fallacies that the left has perpetuated and the education system continues to perpetuate. That leads us to problems when we get to the election and we get to election fraud because then what people look at is that it's a majority rule. And that since they dislike the idea of electoral, the electoral system, it literally can justify winning at any cost. This is the danger we're in. As another footnote on that piece, notice that Colbert said it's, a, it's minority rule. Well, that's pretty interesting because there's a lot of truth in that statement. We're being overrun right now with a minority pedophile faction that has taken over this, the main control sections of this society, and they're ramrodding their agendas down our throat and trying to claim that it's somebody else. Typical deflection. Also, when you want to take a look at it, there's a Democrat in the, in the, supposedly in the White House, the hand puppet Joe Biden, and there's a democratically run House. So I'm really not too sure where their problem is. The problem is that they're dysfunctional. And the problem is they really don't have control of the country. It's falling apart around them. And so now, since there is a fire, and whenever the, a show goes awry, remember, at a circus, the first things they do when there's a problem, somebody falls, some, some performance doesn't go right, what do they do? They bring out the clowns, and we've seen more clowns in this last week, in the last few weeks, than we've ever imagined. That means things are not going well. All right, Patriots, so with that, I'm going to introduce and bring on Juan Osaven. He's been quite a while since he's been on the show. He's been busy. He's made the headlines in mainstream media. 
They, they apparently see him as a QAnon conspiratorial threat to the election process. That's enough for me to perk up my ears and say, what are you doing? Because whatever it is, you're doing something right. Here we go. Juan O'Savin. Well, Patriots, I'm really honored today to have Juan O'Savin back on the show. Been a long time since he's been here, but a lot of things have developed. And as you've probably been tracking, he's made the all-time all-star list by making it to mainstream media's hate list, which <laughs> means whatever he's doing, <laughs> he's doing the right thing. Juan, how are you? And welcome to the show. Hey, great to, great to be back with your audience. And uh, I enjoyed that last interview we did. Uh, it's been quite a while ago, but I certainly get a lot of uh, comments from people, and uh, they just enjoyed your style. So that's awesome thank you well one you're driving today you're traveling all over the country you're, you've been busy oh yeah um you know i uh literally for the last two years uh have been on the road and i i haven't you know been back to my boat or anything during that time it's been just uh very very hectic and uh, believe me i enjoy being on the boat but there just hasn't been even a day to break free so uh, you know, there's a lot going on in the country. We're in a critical crisis moment. It's going to get rougher and bumpier, um, but we're going to get through it. Uh, it's a big deal. So uh, why I've been here this whole time. So let's talk a little bit about what mainstream media was so irate about. <laughs> Obviously, you've been doing some great work with the Secretary of State. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, what happened was I had uh, been tracking what was going on with the voting in Nevada. And uh, I'd been all over the country prior to that, but on the election day, uh, I just so happened to be in Nevada uh, is where I had decided to be um, for that event. And then as things played through, uh, observing what was happening and some of the uh, uh, abnormalities that we saw, in the way the vote was conducted in Nevada, I uh, threw in uh, with some of the uh, money needed to do some of the court cases. Uh, one of the cases that was, uh, you know, I felt the most winnable and egregious was the Jim Marchant case, uh, who was running for U.S. representative. And um, in the course of going through all the, the legal gymnastics, trying to get a recount uh, to get a, a look at what was going on in the vote in Clark County, uh, which just didn't seem to match. Uh, he lost by about 15,000 votes. Um, I got a chance to see firsthand, and I'd been familiar all the way back to the 80s with the Collier brothers uh, of some of the scamming that was going on and the way the vote was counted and, and stuff. So I, I was very familiar with uh, some of the ways these things happened and stuff in Arkansas uh, when Clinton was running for governor and then uh, president um, and, you know, dead people voting, uh, people in the nursing homes voting, uh, you know, fundraisers where, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands are raised and three people show up. You know, uh, I remember, for example, in Arkansas, uh, there was uh, a fundraiser that was at uh, one of the banks there in Arkansas. And so when we went back and tracked it later where there had been um, multiple checks 
for, you know, I think it was $120,000 that came in. One of the checks was for, uh, I think, $10,000, as I recall. And it came in from a kid that we later tracked. Uh, he, he was not able to make his B-dub payment. He's 20 years old. He wasn't able to make his B-dub payment for $56 a month or something. And he was behind uh, like four months on that college student. But yet here he made a $10,000 donation to the uh, Democratic Party. And, well, his dad happened to be the uh, bank president. So they made a donation on his behalf. And then when we looked further, the reason we were looking at him, he had an account in the Caymans, in the Coral Reef Reinsurance Corporation, uh, he had an account in there that had hundreds of millions of dollars in it. Well, they were, you know, parking money offshore and then uh, running it through the banks. And it was part of the uh, operation that was going on in Arkansas, which was a huge money laundering operation for the drug money uh, coming in through uh, uh, Arkansas Redevelopment Finance Authority and uh, a pseudo-public-private agency that was really a, a money laundering operation for, for drug operations out of South America. And uh, so, but, you know, looking at this kid, we, we found several other people that were children of, uh, of the key players that were using other family members and employees and other things to, to throw money into these campaigns. And uh, so, you know, we're looking at, things like that, for example, in Nevada, and then the way the machines are counting, the people that are present uh, running the machines and doing the count like that. In the course of doing all that, uh, we couldn't get past the court in Nevada. Uh, the judges you know, challenged on standings, and they challenged were the percentages of the loss close enough to warrant a recount and uh, ultimately, uh, we just couldn't get there. Um, the, the Republican Party promised the uh, uh, state director of the uh, Republican Party, Mike McDonald, uh, that because uh, we knew there was going to be you know mischief in the vote, promised them that they'd have sixty lawyers and you know uh, sixty million dollars for fighting all the cases in Nevada. Um, you know, that, that were going to come up and they were going to fight hard for Nevada. Um, after the election, they got like four lawyers and uh, a lot of the bills never did get paid. Some of us stepped in and had to pay people because the uh, GOP never paid the bill. And uh, so, you know, that's still a sore spot with a number of people. Um, GOP you know, went out and, and went to the public, you know, we're going to go against vote fraud. We need all this help. And so the American people put $350 million into the Republican Party to go after uh, vote problems after the election. Uh, and uh, nothing happened. That money just sat in the account. And uh, that's why President Trump came out uh, later and, you know, literally filed a suit against the Republican Party. You can't use my name to generate funds for the Republican Party for vote fraud. Uh, do it without me because they weren't spending the money when they got it. They were taking all the air out of the room. People were donating, thinking they were helping getting it 
uh, boat fraud issues than they weren't. So uh, then Jim Marchand, uh, I talked it over with them uh, at lunch there at the Trump and, uh, you know, talked about you know, where do we attack? And of course, the issue for America is when the Soros organization came in and my way of saying it is they attacked America in the political spectrum. Uh, the way they attacked was to go after the Secretary of State positions in various states. But the first state that they went after was uh, Nevada. And the reason is, you have to understand who Soros is. Soros is a creation, in my opinion. I, I do that for nice legal reasons. Um, in my opinion, uh, Soros is a creation of British intelligence. The uh, way that Soros made the vast majority of his money was shorting uh, currencies, starting with the uh, British pound. And uh, as the pound went down, he made these vast amounts of money. Uh, then he went to other Commonwealth countries uh, uh, out through the British Empire and uh, was shorting their currencies and making these vast amounts of money. Well, if you're shorting you know, the currencies in your own system, you control the legal system. Nobody's going to go attack you for it. They made this huge black budget thing. They didn't have to go to Parliament. They didn't have to get permission to do anything. And they're able to, uh, uh, you know, use that money to do other stuff. And they have gained this out, uh, you know, literally by computers, AIs. How do you get control of the American system? Um, and uh, but you start politically uh, at the Secretary of State positions because they control the elections. And that's where Soros started and uh, then went out from there uh, after getting a, a huge bite into the uh, Secretary of State's office across the uh, country in multiple states. Then they went after the AG uh, positions to and, and prosecutors to uh, uh, control how the judges look at cases and, and uh, what they'll pay attention to. So um, in order to fight back uh, in, in just kind of doing this larger strategic view of what's going on in the country with the vote politically, etc., if you're going to try and get the voting problems back under control, you've got to have the cooperation of the secretaries of state. They've got to decide to go after uh, vote uh, issues. So for example, in Nevada, the Secretary of State um, put a uh, letter of understanding out, going back to the uh, director of, of uh, driver's license uh, office in Nevada, where they had been directed by the legislature, I believe it was, to go ahead and, and register voters when they're getting their driver's license. But then they went one step further. We can't tell who's citizens and who's not necessarily. So we're just going to, you know, they had a challenge. You mean you want us, you're not giving us a budget to actually do this or authority to check for citizenship. So the uh, Secretary of State said, hey, don't worry about it. Add anybody that registered a driver's license, automatically uh, register them in the database to be voters. And uh, that's the way it is. And if you register somebody who's not a citizen, we're not going to go after you for doing anything wrong. And I came from the Secretary of State. 
So if you're not going to go after anybody for, you know, signing up to be a voter that's not a U.S. citizen, and you're not going to go after the director of licensing to, you know, they know who the citizens are, uh, to not pass that information along, to put them in the database, uh, you're going to have non-resident, non-citizen voters in the database, and that's just wrong. So a Secretary of State made that arbitrary decision. The whole country had to live with it. Uh, we went in, uh, asked other persons that were running for Secretary of State in other uh, adjacent states if they wanted to work together in a coalition, and eventually built that out uh, to uh, you know over a dozen uh, states. Now we've had some primaries and uh, lost a few of our candidates, but we've also kept uh, several, and uh, we're still we've we've brought in other candidates from other positions. In some states, the governor appoints the secretary of state. So we've kept uh, those governors in our coalition also. And then we've got uh, some people running for Senate and um, uh, AG within the coalition also. So we're the largest candidates coalition in the country right now. So long answer, but that's, that's, that's one lane where we're pissing them off. A lot of this is people learning the depth of the corruption and equally the complexity of the system, because that's, in my opinion, that's one of the ways that they've exploited this so effectively is there's so many moving parts that not everybody can keep track of it. And they've infiltrated into key nodes, like you've talked about that are become extremely important that people often don't even realize. What is your, yeah, go ahead. Well, and let me just say this. Um, It's been a learning curve for me too. I thought, um, all the way back to the Collier brothers in the 80s who wrote a fantastic book, uh, Vote Scam. And they were pretty coarse. Um, I remember talking with them uh, even before they published the book. And uh, they were, you know, a bit rough and tumble. Um, they had uh, uh, made their money making suntan lotion. <laughs> they were surfers and they started making suntan lotion in buckets and selling it on the beach in bottles that they were buying that were used. They were buying bottles at a uh, paint supply shop for uh, cars, uh, uh, automotive paint. And they had these little bottles that the guys would put uh, rubbing compound in. So they buy the raw bottle, put the shampoo in it. And then they had uh, literally a typewriter typing, labels on it they're selling them on the beach for like three dollars and started making money and then uh, they uh, uh, became I, I forget which which suntan lotion company is one of the really good ones uh, Hawaiian tropics I think it was and uh, you know they're in Florida and they use the title Hawaiian tropics or whatever but uh, we met I had one of my one of my uh, cars a, a very rare um only six of them built uh, 65 Shelby uh, convertible. And uh, uh, so they'd only built six of them. I had it and I had it in a parade and one of the brothers was there and uh, we got to talking at drinks afterwards and they were, they were pretty rowdy. The other brother showed up and uh, then they were telling me all about the vote stuff because they were going after Janet Reno. And the deal was, is that uh, they actually would go out and look at what the, books and records showed in the counties where 
they looked at the original receipts on what a vote might have been coming in from the precincts, and then they go look at the county's records, and they didn't match. And they actually put together a very uh, detailed series of reports. They went to Janet Reno, who was the attorney general for Florida at the time. Uh, And, you know, this is in the 80s. And they thought they were going to get a big slap on the back, and they'd uncovered all this uh, fraud in the way that the counts were being uh, done and recorded and everything else. And uh, she threatened them within, you know, an inch of their life. And they, they were just shocked. They went to the FBI. They, they tried all the different angles to get somebody to look at it, and they couldn't get traction one. In fact, they were getting death threats. And so they wrote the book, Vote Scam. And uh, it, it follows their style. You know, they cuss in the book. They use all sorts of swear words. Um, but it was a very popular book at the time, and it was very accurate. It really showed the frustration of how the vote could be so corrupted and you couldn't get anybody in an official position to do a thing about it. And in fact, uh, they complained when Jana Reno was being uh, put up there to be the U.S. Uh, uh, attorney and she, uh, she got sailed through by Congress. Nobody challenged anything and so they published their book. You know, and and that's, that's this history in the country. Uh, right now, um, I, you know, I was just talking with somebody that's in a very prominent position with stuff that just came out, you know, over the last couple months and on some new stuff that we have on an angle on what's gone on in the boat fraud. Uh, instead of going downstream to Dropbox, it's going upstream to where that data was being relayed and the, and the materials were coming from at a state level, which was Georgia. And then uh, in this particular group of things, and then out of the country to China. And so they were lamenting that, yeah, the problem is there's no legal angle for us to pursue because there's nobody looking at it. Nobody, there's no real way to pursue justice in this. And the comparison I'd have for your audience, if you remember when all the challenges were coming over uh, Obama's birth certificate, at the end of the day, there was no mechanism that was actually legally available to challenge uh, in a court the birth certificate uh, in anything approaching an, an effectual way. It, it, it wasn't just that there was all sorts of data that uh, showed problems. The only place that we were winning was in the court of public opinion. And even that was put away with uh, Loretta Fuddy coming in and, uh, you know, supposedly finding the person that could find the safe under the floor, you know, swept under the rug somehow by accident, you know. So uh, uh, at the end of the day, there was no real legal mechanism to challenge. Um, you know, yeah, the Constitution says he's supposed to be, you know, born in the U.S., uh, parents born in the U.S., I should say, uh, U.S. citizens. and. Uh, you know, there's no real legal mechanism to uh, to challenge it. So, you know, it's interesting, but big deal. If we don't start getting a way to start challenging the fraud in the vote system, then we're going to be in a real problem of how to do follow-up because I don't, fraud's just not magically going to go away in any of this. 
these people are deeply rooted. I think that's the biggest thing we're discovering is that how deep this rancer is. And it's, I'll be honest with you, it's been stunning even for me as we've pulled back these layers to realize just how many people are willfully in a mindset that betrayal is a normal way of life. Well, let me just add this. Uh, for example, in Georgia, um, the person doing the vote count and pushing the numbers in the machine and everything else, you know, he's got his $50,000 Rolex, $25,000 suit, his $5,000 shoes. And, oh, by the way, he's not a U.S. citizen. And then he's got several other people working there in, in the office in Fulton County, and they're not U.S. citizens either. Are you telling me that we don't have U.S. citizens ready, willing, and able to go to work to count the vote in Fulton County, Georgia? Seriously. Seriously. And that, that are capable. You got... Google, you got Microsoft putting huge offices in there to balance out their presence across the country uh, from the West Coast over to the East Coast. And then we don't have technical people able to operate the vote computer systems. We have to go to somebody from outside of the U.S. to manage the count of the vote in America. Bullshit. That's, uh, look, I, I had. Uh, conversation the other day with uh, somebody that's in a um, family situation where they uh, handle stuff uh, you know within a certain type of family situation and they were very distraught that uh, their turf is being impinged upon uh, within the uh, uh, union worker zone by people from outside the country who are coming in and managing stuff in their territory. And at the end of the day, and I, I say this, and, I, and I'm not saying it actually lightly, I'm just kind of trying to dance through this a little bit. Can you imagine how territorial, uh, you know, daily with the Chicago mob a modern variation of, you know, the Capone mob, if you will, or uh, the New York mob with any of the five families there would be if somebody got in their territory on any little thing. And, and the negotiations they go through, well, you know, you can have the concrete deal, but we get the asphalt deal. And, and uh, we get this percentage of that, you get that percentage of the other thing. They're dicing up the country for their mob operation. And you've got a bigger mob from outside the country who's coming in, calling the shots, and making sure their mob members are doing the vote count. You know, it's the Stalin thing. It's not, it doesn't matter who people vote for. It only matters who counts the vote. And that's exactly what we have here in America. It's very distressing. And, and I, you know, when I say something like that, I do understand how over the top that sounds. And, you know, I know how people are hearing this and I, oh my God, I'm, I'm serious as can be. Your vote is being run by literally political mobster families 
to make sure that they get their person in to control things the way they want. And then those mobster families locally are being run by larger families out across the country and even out across the world. How far back do you think this goes, Juan? Um, well, I will say this. Uh, you know, uh, Hot Springs, Arkansas was neutral ground for the American mob families in the uh, 20s and 30s. And so, uh, and I don't think that completely quieted down even in, in later years, but especially in that era, uh, you could come from any of the families, New York, Chicago, Florida, Louisiana, uh, uh, Dixie Mob, etc. When you went to Hot Springs, Arkansas, you went there for a reason. It was understood anybody does anything to anybody else they don't just come for you. They come for your whole family. They wipe you all out. You don't get a second shot. So when you're there, come on, you can drop your card. You can relax. It's neutral ground and nobody does a thing. And so literally the mobsters would come there to be in sanctuary to hang out and do what they want to do. Well, so what's ground zero on planet earth for the Rockefeller family at that time? That was Hot Springs, Arkansas. And uh, I'll say something that maybe some of your listeners have heard before from me. Uh, but if you haven't, uh, Bill Clinton, his dad uh, was not, you know, uh, who you think it is. His dad was uh, Winthrop Rockefeller. The Rockefeller family was using that as their home base. They were managing things there. In fact, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you one. Here we go. Um, when Ross Perot was running against uh, Clinton and Bush, he comes in as a conservative businessman. Who was he stealing votes from or taking votes from when he was running for president? He wasn't taking votes from Bill Clinton. He was taking votes out of the conservative side from George Bush. He was splitting uh, the conservative side. By the way, I'm no Bush fan. Uh, but uh, uh, the country was being divided not two ways, left or right. They were div being divided three ways, but it was the right, the conservative side, that was the place where the, most of the votes were coming over. There was some of the uh, Democrats that came out of the Clinton campaign, but primarily from Bush. So when Bush inexplicably got out of the race in the summer and said, I'm not running for president anymore, uh, it, it shocked everybody. And then uh, Bush Sr. became very, very popular. I have a pro got out of the race. And uh, uh, it looked like George Bush was going to win the race. So in the Late summer, uh, what happened was, uh, and I know this from the guys on the inside uh, who I know personally, uh, pro security person got a call from uh, Rockefeller's security person, told him to get his ass uh, down to the airport uh, there in Dallas. And in the morning, this was uh, late at night, at uh, a certain uh, friend of pro's. Uh, residents. And uh, so uh, he 
you know, got told he had to be in, uh, um, you know, the, on the plane, come over to the Rockefeller Ranch in Hot Springs immediately. So he gets on the plane. It wasn't his plane. It was Rockefeller's plane that they sent over. He couldn't get to fly his. They sent over the school bus. And then he uh, goes over to, to Hot Springs and he sits there. They have a runway right there in front of the house that the Rockefeller's takes. Uh, gets off the plane, goes in the house, and they make him wait for an hour and 20 minutes. Now, why did they do that? They're making sure he knew who was in charge here. Where did Perot get all of his money? Pro got his money for EDS, uh, which was this data uh, system. In the early days of, of the big computers, um, the uh, checks for all these state government operations, uh, you know, were being switched over to automated printing systems and uh, uh, payroll and like that. So uh, Pro got this particular system. Uh, he didn't have the money to bid for these big, huge contracts. And so he uh, uh, had to go to David Rockefeller and said, I a big contract with New Jersey. I want to bid on it. They need a $50 million, uh, you know, bond in place. And I don't have it. So if you'll sign the bond, then I can do the bid. We'll share the money. So David Rockefeller didn't have to put out any cash. All he had to do was put a security deposit, the bond in place. And pro bids for the New Jersey thing. It's a lock. It's uh, kind of a you know greasy handshake deal. And uh, then uh, EDS is off. And then they go out across the country. Uh, their program and stuff worked in the old IBM 3031, 32, and 33 uh, computer systems. These huge computers at the time that filled a couple of rooms and then handled all the payroll and accounting and like that. So EDS became wildly uh, wealthy and valuable. And of course, Perot being the biggest shareholder made huge amounts of money. So when, when Perot comes over to meet with David Rockefeller there at the Rockefeller estate in Hot Springs, Arkansas, uh, he made the wait out in the outer office. He finally comes in, uh, he gets seen. He comes out uh, a little over an hour later, and a security person described him as looking white as a ghost. Actually, I had to kind of help him upstairs on the plane. He has a scotch on the plane, has another scotch on the plane flying back to Dallas, and uh, uh, then he. Uh, um, tells them to set a news conference back at the Dallas airport as soon as they land. Don't let the sun go down before you make your announcement. Pro, you can go look at the news conference. He says, in the news conference, after uh, conferring with uh, my good friend uh, David Rockefeller, looking at the state of the nation and all the other blah, 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 I have decided that uh, I'm going to get back in the race for the good of the nation. And he gets back in the race. Well, that's Arkansas. Where's Clinton from? Arkansas. When I dealt with the police officers who were Bill Clinton's personal security detail uh, in the uh, 90s, uh, guys like Larry Patterson, 
30-year uh, state trooper in Arkansas who was Bill Clinton's uh, uh, security at, when he was governor of Arkansas. Uh, he said that during the campaign, when Clinton was running, that Rocket, or uh, um, Perot, Ross Perot, and Bill Clinton were talking five and six times a day. He'd call Perot, Perot would call him, and they were coordinating their campaign between each other so that uh, Clinton uh, would gain votes from the Democrats by the things that uh, Perot said, and Perot would say things that would take votes pre- predominantly from Bush, not from Clinton. And so they were, they were talking all through the day, called back and forth to make sure that what they said and how they said it was directly aimed at uh, Bush. And uh, uh, that was a political mob operation for the benefit of a particular crowd. And again, who's Bill Clinton? Bill Clinton is a hidden Rockefeller right in plain sight. His father is not Blythe, the guy that rolled over in the ditch upside down in the car in the 40s. Uh, at the end of World War II, uh, uh, that was a convenient choice. Uh, Blythe was five foot seven, balding, and uh, Bill Clinton is six four, the uh, same as his dad, one for Rockefeller, with silver mane of hair. Uh, and you didn't get to go see President uh, Kennedy at the White House and stand on the White House lawn. When you see that picture of Bill Clinton getting to shake hands with uh, president Kennedy and, and famously uh, saying that uh, when I grow up, I just want to be president. You know, uh, how did that happen? Because if you take the picture out wider, not cropped, Winter Proxel is right there at the side of that group of boys getting a picture taken with President uh, uh, Kennedy. Um, you're seeing bloodline families taking control of the country, working together. Uh, for their mutual self-interest, and who was running all the mob families down in Hot Springs, who was in control of the mob families across America, and declaring Hot Springs neutral ground for them to come to? Rockefeller family. That's what's going on here. Wow. So when we talk about the vote and this much manipulation and literally political power playing going on at these strategic levels. There's a lot of concern about whether votes really even count. And I think it's pretty justifiable looking at what happened in 2020. What's your thoughts on that? And especially if people are heading into the fall and we're being told that, you know, need to vote. And yet there hasn't really been any major change in the voting system in the last two years. You know, the other thing you mentioned, the SOS as an extension out of the SOS uh, uh, candidates group and other candidates that have come in on this stuff. Uh, We've also, uh, a number of these um, candidates joined together uh, in doing what we call election integrity, uh, election justice uh, events, where we bring in experts around the country and talk about what we saw happen in the last election, 2020, and then what are the things that need to be done to provide for a secure election in 2022 and 2024? 
and in in doing that, we've identified all sorts of problems. Uh, even what I talked with you behind the scenes about a few minutes ago, stuff that we've been working on even this last weekend. Um, we found so many egregious things wrong that make it so that, first of all, the machines that were certified safe and secure for the election in 2020, um, it's highly suspect that many, if not most, of the machines or systems, it's not just electronic votes. You know, people hear the Dominion or ES&F all the time. But it's beyond that. It's the paper ballots. What uh, 2000 Mule showed us about the security of the paper ballots coming in. Uh, It's every kind of election system that we're using currently has major, major vulnerabilities. So part of the question is coming into 2022, and I think it goes to what you were just asking a moment ago, will we be able by uh, November 8th, which is the next election, to know that we have a secure voting system here in America? Can we, with confidence, say that we will have an honest, fair vote in 2022 in the majority of the places that we're doing a vote at all in this federal election. And I think that it's not um, gaslighting. It's not uh, just being, um, you know, when I say this, I don't want it to sound excessive or just, you know, trying to be over spectacular and dramatic or something. But the reality is, with the things that we know and are learning every day right now with the work that I and others are doing, I do not see any possible way that we can have a secure vote, whether it be by secure paper with watermarks and all the other security features uh, or electronic, that there is no current way even if we started right now today and said we're just going straight paper, one day vote, blah, 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 um, the logistics would be almost impossible to get it done by election day in 2022. Uh, I'm not saying it would be impossible, but it would be almost impossible. And it would take a Manhattan style um, process to make that happen. So, uh, when the vote happens in 2022, as it's currently set right now, uh, even with very, you know, one of the things I also want to add right here, there's from the conservative side, from the right, uh, you know, Trump voters, independents, things like that. I think there's a lot of uh, knee-jerk reaction that the people running the vote are all bad. I mentioned the individual who's not a U.S. citizen and the mischief going on there. Um, yes, there's huge problems with some of the personnel and uh, people willing, even American citizens, to you know act like a mobster gang to get their person in for just plain money to steal the leadership of America for themselves, the leadership positions. But 
far more of the people are honest. They're just in a tough situation. So we had a situation in, in one of the states where we did an election integrity event here a month and a half ago. And uh, a couple of the county commissioners showed up from a couple of different counties. And they had their arms crossed and they were all ready for war because we're coming in there saying that they're not running a fair election. Uh, similar to what Tina Peters up in Colorado said, she, she understood as the county clerk in Mesa County, Colorado, she believed that her county with the Dominion machine was the gold standard of secure elections in the country in the world, that they run the most secure, uh, tightest ship in the country. It, it, you know, whatever the citizens in that county vote, that's what they're getting. And it wasn't until uh, Dominion was going to come in and do what they do, a, what they call a trusted build maintenance uh, session on her vote machine after the vote and all of her constituents, you know, she had a bunch of constituents that came to her and were very animated. They're going to steal this. They're going to steal the vote. They're going to flip things in there. They're going to hide what happened. You got to not let them have access to the machine. You got to do something. And so she reached out to uh, uh, people who then passed her along to um, a technician from the cybersecurity infrastructure uh group within Homeland Security. This is not somebody that's just, uh, you know, anybody just, you know, went down to Radio Shack and got a technician to go do something inside the vote machine. This is a person who is actually trained, has a, a federal security clearance to look at voting systems and vote machines, etc. Went out to Colorado, did a uh, an image, a photograph if you will, like making a copy of a CD or a DVD from one machine to another. doesn't change a thing, just make a copy, an image of it. Made a copy of everything inside the uh, vote machine before Dominion came out to service it and then left a hard drive there so that when they were finished, she could make another copy and send it to him and he could have a before and after to look at what was going on inside the machine. Um, so when, you know, she, she believed she had a, a very safe system, but now she was a little concerned. So we, we were out in this other state and these county commissioners are there who are in charge of, you know, making sure that what machines are used, etc. And they got their arms crossed. They're all pissed off. Uh, they haven't done anything you know, that they think is nefarious, and they're, they're going to prove that, that our guys are wrong. In the end, uh, by the time we were done with, you know, six-hour uh, conference and reviewing stuff, they stuck around for another two days to talk with our technicians and go through stuff, and they became great friends. They understood it. They were, they have very technical backgrounds uh, in the, uh, uh, computer industry and talked with our guys who also have similar backgrounds with the vote and computer industry. And they realized, Oh my gosh, you're right. These things are, they're a sieve. They're totally vulnerable. 
And now what do we do to secure this? How do we fix this problem? And they become trusted allies. I think most of the people in most of the counties around the country, they're just like Tina Peters. They're just like election officials, uh, uh, county commissioners that we had there. We've had county commissioners in Nevada and Arizona and Texas who looked at the same material and said, okay, we're not certifying a machine vote in our counties that's going to have to be paper with a hand count because we can't trust the machines. Once they know how they work, what's going on, they're totally get it and they don't want to be part of a fraud on the public or where there's the potential of it being fraudulent because the reputations are on the line. Um, most of them are way underpaid. They're doing it as some kind of a public service. They think they're on the right side of you know history and doing the right thing. And uh, we just need to help them understand what's going on and do the system better. The, the vote in America is being very sneakily stolen right under the noses of the very people that think that they're protecting it. And, and it's like you go to Vegas and a really good con man can come in and they can, they can do little things at the table to the machines, etc. It looks totally innocent, uh, et cetera. But once you know how they're doing the magic, how they're doing the con, it's, it's very obvious. And that's why you have, you know, all the cameras in the roof of the building because they know all the ways these guys can be sneaky and uh, 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 tilt the tables. And it's the same thing in the, vo- in the voting. We now are seeing all the ways that they've been doing it, and we realize, oh, my gosh, there is no angle that you can protect uh, with these machines uh, as it currently stands from uh, fraud in the vote. And that's a difficult situation that we're all in. But I think the main focus as we look forward here is is local because that's the one area I think we can still control. Well, it, uh, all voting is done at the county level. So uh, when you start saying, well, we're going to have the Fed look at this or do some other, you know, rules or whatever, uh, the Secretary of the State manages the counties within the state and gives you know, within the state, everybody's got to play by the correct rules the same way. Um, but the actual vote itself is handled and managed at the county level. And so uh, one of the, the, the actual dangers for America is, in my opinion, uh, having looked at all of this, there's this push right now to federalize the observation control rules for um, elections, federal elections. And it sounds great. I mean, you know, when I first heard it, I thought, well, yeah, that's what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to go to, go to the Fed managing everything. The problem is Constitution uh, reduces power to the lowest level uh, necessary to accomplish its purposes. Uh, the federal system was supposed to be extremely weak, but why? Because as you centralize power and control, it takes fewer and fewer people to manage the steel, to do the deed. You only need a couple of crooked people right at the top and you can steal everything. So by dividing power out 
as far and wide as possible, which is what the Constitution does. It's what the whole point of states retaining power to themselves is all about. It becomes harder and harder for any one person or group to impose their will across everybody. And that's why a county sheriff, for example, is the most powerful law enforcement official in the county. The county sheriff is more powerful than the FBI at the county level. Um, he decides, you know, how they're going to operate uh, within his county. And uh, that's why it's an elected uh, position. And that's, that's something that's not really understood right now. That's why you have um, constitutional sheriff's groups rising up all over the country over the last 10 years and saying, whoa, 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 sheriffs, sheriffs run these things. Uh, what the feds are doing right now is not in line with the Constitution. They answer to us at the county level and how things are going to be run and operated. So when you look at the elections, if we're already having a problem with fraud and other things, uh, mismanagement, etc., cetera, uh, if you're going to switch that over to the feds, and think you're going to get a more honest election, you're probably dreaming. They should be done, managed, controlled, and prosecuted at the county level and supervised at the state level to make sure it's, it's, uh, it's consistent between the various counties. So, for example, uh, Las Vegas, uh, uh, Nevada, the state, uh, you have 17 counties in Nevada. Some of the counties only have a few thousand voters. I mean, literally a couple thousand voters. Uh, they're very sparsely populated. And uh, then you've got Clark County and Washoe County, which are over half the total number of registered voters in the state. If uh, Clark County or Washoe County, if there's any kind of collusion in there, if there's anything goes wonky, the outlying um, uh counties, uh, they can't win. So they're very sensitive to being pushed around by Clark County that imposes all sorts of ideas and rules and taxes, etc. that cost them a bunch of money, but only benefit the main central locations of, of uh, Las Vegas and, and its nearby surroundings. So in looking at how the vote has been conducted in Colorado, or in uh, Nevada and seeing some of the bizarre things, you know, thousands and thousands of ballots being mailed out, uh, some to places where there isn't even a mailbox, empty lots, uh, buildings with hundreds of people in a building that has, you know, eight units in it or something, uh, all sorts of bizarre things. Uh, for example, um, one of the uh, one story that you'll get a kick out of uh, one of my friends who is also a friend of President Trump, uh, Bonnie. She uh, uh, has worked as a as a poll worker for thirty years, and so and a couple of her friends that she went to grade school with. She's lived in Nevada all her life, um, and by the way, uh, she's a pretty savvy kid. She got to go to high school driving her Ferrari that her dad bought her new in 1962. So, she's, you know, imagine being a high school kid 
because they had a, a, a ranch and it was like 20 miles into town to go to school. And so she, that's what she got to drive to school. And anyway, um, she, uh, is working as a poll worker. That's one of the things she does. Donate her time as a good citizen. Has done it for 30 years. And she's, the guy comes in, she's a little, uh, Irish history in the family, red haired girl. And, uh, uh, big burly linebacker, uh, black guy shows up. He's about six, four, six, five, uh, uh, looks a little different cause he's, he's, you know, wearing very feminized outfits and, uh, uh, signing in to do his vote. And so as he signs in, um, which you don't have to show ID at this point in Nevada, uh, cause the legislature changed that. So, uh, he signs in and, uh, uh, Bonnie sees the address and name and then, uh, says that she's looking at the, the, uh, signature registration thing to verify on the signature and she says hey could you take a look at this to one of the other poll workers who's a friend that she went to school with as a kid um, I, I'm having a hard time bearing this, verifying the signature and so the friend looks at it and says oh oh okay uh, and Bonnie says hey, could you go ask so and so downstairs if they could uh, bring up the original signature card for me so that we can compare this and so they're, they're waiting. The guy turns and runs out the door. They can't do anything. They can't follow. There's no cameras because you can't have cameras inside the uh, area and all that. Well, what was the problem? Of all the people in all the voting booths in Nevada that you could have walked up to with a stolen identity, imagine the shock for Bonnie when the guy signed in her dad's name who'd been dead for over a decade and the address where she grew up two doors over from the other friend who grew up with her and recognized the address. He came in and tried to vote under her dad's name who's been dead for over a decade. All they do is go over to the uh, uh, graveyard, find the name and address of a person, and then they would uh, use that to come in and vote. And, and the ballots are being sent out to people all over. And then, you know, uh, her grandson, when her grandson showed up to vote, 20 years old, he shows up and he goes to vote. And they said, oh, you've already voted. No, I haven't. Yes, you have. It shows you you've already voted. Somebody had voted for him in the system. That's the kind of stuff that was going on in Nevada. So... When you step back out across the country and you look at uh, the problems coming up on 2022, you use Nevada as an example. If they're cheating in Clark County and they're cheating heavily, the outlying counties, their vote doesn't matter. If you run the most honest vote in Lander County that you can you can have and you got 2,800 registered voters, I believe it is up there. Um, and nobody gets away with any mischief with the kind of, of shenanigans that we're seeing in Las Vegas. Your vote's negated. It doesn't matter. You're wasting your time. And so those outlying counties are kind of pissed about the uh, uh, malarkey in the vote. 
But Lander said, we're not going to use the machines anymore. Or I should say uh, one of the other counties, it wasn't Lander's one of the other ones. They said, we're not going to use it. I think we have three now that have said that. So they want to go to a hand count with a paper ballot. Um, okay. A paper ballot in those outlying counties to keep the vote on us. But if, let's say that we have 15 of the 17 counties in Nevada decide that they're going to go to a hand count, a paper ballot to keep the vote on us, but Washoe and Clark County don't agree to do that. And they're going to keep on and they're going to let the frauds happen. The fraud could outweigh their county, but a different thing's also going on. The way the vote is conducted with paper versus electronic is not consistent across the state. So those outlying counties can turn around and say, we're running an honest vote in our county and we can verify it and we know it's honest. We aren't going to participate in a fraudulent vote. And if Clark and Washoe won't get their act together, we won't submit the results or certify the results from uh, for the state election, uh, we just won't play. We'll just freeze right where we're at. Well, this, the state law is that all the counties have to agree that the vote was, uh, you know, conducted honestly and certify the overall vote. If any of those counties for cause say we're not going to play and we're not going to certify it, you can't seat a new governor or lieutenant governor or statewide judge you can't seat a senator or uh, a representative, and you can't determine an outcome for electors of president or vice president. So the reality is uh, a couple of counties, technically one even, who won't agree to certify the vote because uh, they believe that other counties aren't playing fair can throw a monkey right into the whole operation. Ultimately, the same types of rules exist between the states. So, for example, Texas, Attorney General uh, Ken Paxton in Texas, he sued seven of the other states to, for, to go in and look at how they conducted the vote and verify that the vote in the 2020 election was done in an honest and fair way. Got all the way up to the Supreme Court and 28 other states agreed with Texas. It was a well-laid-out suit uh, to force those seven states to go back and examine their vote, their procedures, and verify before they certified with their electors that the vote was an honest vote. The Supreme Court said, hey, this is a state matter. We're not getting involved. Uh, we're not going to do anything and threw it back to the states. And so Texas doesn't have any authority over the other states to run an honest, fair vote. You can you can have a couple of states decide to band together or the mob running those states band together. They can cheat, throw the whole country a different direction by electing somebody through collusion uh, uh, at the top and throw the entire country with an election a different direction and get uh, mine and others' contention, and have been since day one. That's exactly what 
happened. You have uh, a president now in office and many other positions who is not the actual person that was voted for by the majority of Americans. And by the way, the uh, GOP, the Republican Party in Texas, GOP means grand old party. Some of the younger folks don't know these things, so it's worth mentioning it to them. Uh, the GOP in Texas had 5,000 uh, people present, delegates present, for their state convention in Texas the other day, their, their uh, biannual convention. And those people watched the movie 2,000 Mules, and after the movie was over, they did a vote, a resolution, and said, we, the GOP here in Texas, agree that uh, Joe Biden did not win the election and is not lawfully the elected leader of the United States. He may have been certified by Congress, but the data, the evidence now shows that you could not possibly have certified that election because of the data that we're now seeing uh, from 2000 Mules and many other directions, including the stuff that uh, uh, my groups have been putting together. So what do you see then as a solution to this? And it's, that's, I think, where it's a kind of at the core of what we're both hitting on is we're heading into November. There's a lot of lack of confidence in vote, which is well earned. There's a very slow and difficult process to try to reset integrity in the vote. And in the meantime, we're charging it with another election and expecting some sort of red wave, which I keep asking. It's like, OK, if we're going to get a red wave, what are we really getting because nothing in the basic system has changed. So what is your thought on how we really change this and how we get to a point where we can once again say we have honest and fair elections? Well, I mean, uh, it's a sticky wicket. It's really hard to grab onto this uh, in any direction. We don't have the handle. Somebody else does. Um, And I have an answer, but it's not an answer that I really want to say too loud and harshly because uh, it's not what people want to hear. Is there a magic pill to have a safe, fair, honest election across the country in 2022 uh, at this point in time? No. Is there enough time to get there? Arguably, yes. But in reality, knowing how much, you know, it takes logistically an agreement, everybody in on it, it would take, we're nowhere close to consensus within the electorate on the things that need to be done to get to that point. Uh, The system is just that cooked. So should we just go ahead and go along and, and get by with what we have for 2022 election and we'll try to sort it out where we have a longer runway going out to 2024? Well, what the problem is, as we get people in there in 2022, if uh, the mob, the mob are able to control the elections and put people in there that favor the current group that wasn't honestly elected, and uh, they can get more of their same crowd in there, they'll change the rules. They'll continue to modify the rules as the secretary of state 
were doing coming into the 2022 election because of COVID and other things. They'll change the rules, and pretty soon, with vote harvesting or vote by mail or even vote from your telephone type of stuff, they'll make it so that you'll never, ever be able to catch them or stop them in uh, their sneaky tricks ever again. Uh, even if you catch it legally, you won't have recourse. They will, uh, you know, it, it's their game, their way. They make the rules, and you won't get to, uh, you know, an honest vote, my opinion, uh, ever again. Uh, how do you, how are you going to stop it? The, the most important things in my mind are, first of all, you can't let go of 2020. Uh, legally, all the data, all the instruments used in the vote for 2020 have to be kept for 22 months uh, so that if there's need to relook at stuff, challenge it, etc., you have all of that ready, available, untouched for 22 months. That's why when Dominion was coming in to do this trusted build, this maintenance to the uh, vote machines in Mesa County, Colorado, and Tina's going, well, we're not supposed to touch these machines at all. We're not supposed to do anything to them. Oh, no, no, we're just, uh, we're just doing a trusted build. Well, you're not supposed to change anything in the machine for 22 months. Why are you doing that? Well, it's part of the maintenance contract. And it's our machine because you don't buy the machines. You kind of, you know, you, you lease them, you buy them, but uh, for licensing reasons, because they're all patented inside. Nobody's supposed to look at them, but Dominion technicians, uh, you know, it's a mob run operation. So um, in reality, we know that a lot of the, systems have either been deleted, altered, changed in, in various ways. Uh, and I say that with, that's a very exact statement. We know that machines have been changed in their data since 2020. That's what some of these lawsuits are all about. The stuff that Lindell's doing, the stuff that uh, technicians are looking at, um, the data has been altered and changed, and that's a violation of federal law, federal election law. Uh, can we prosecute it? It is a prosecutable offense if you can prove it. Are we on a path to prove it in enough places uh, right at this second? Uh, arguably. Uh, 22 months from the November 3rd, 2020 election is September 3rd uh, at midnight. On September 4th, they can uh, delete, change, alter. I guarantee you they're going to have shredding machines, incinerators, garbage trucks, moving vans, everyone that you can possibly find in the country packed up to the vote centers, and that stuff will be gone in seconds at the point that it gets to midnight. Uh, a lot of stuff has already been damaged or destroyed. Um, so are we going to wait till the 2022 election? Or are we going to try and get preservation orders, uh, legal blocks that stop 
anything from happening to that vote while we continue to try to prove out and establish what happened in 2020. It's a race. Um, it's going to be a tough one. But again, my opinion, if, if you don't get to the bottom of what happened in 2020, in not just the presidential election, but a number of other uh, key federal uh, positions, if you don't get to the bottom of the fraud on 2020, you'll never get a better, clearer opportunity in your lifetime. It'll never happen. And the only way that you would uh, make that statement, uh, turn that around, is some type of uh, national uh, conflict internally to wrestle power back from these mobs that have taken control of the country through a crooked vote system. So, Patriots, that was Juan Osaban, part one. And we'll finish up tomorrow night with part two, where we dig into a little bit of the bigger picture and we start to look at who the players are behind the scenes and just how massive this operation really is on a global scale. I think what we're starting to understand is when we talk about our system being a slave system, it is exactly that. What they have done is they have lured everybody in to, a, to trust in the vote, to trust in your job, to trust in your corporation, and incrementally over time to give up all of your freedom and to give up all of your rights, but in the process thinking each time you're participating in a representative democracy. And then they continue to put their people in charge, many of which, as we have learned, are pedophiles. And as they put those in charge, they start to elevate up more of their own to fill the ranks more deeply with their own perverted class until pretty soon, no matter what you do, you're running into the same people over and over that are destroying the system and controlling us. It is very important to understand in what the part here that Juan is hitting at, and you're going to hear others say something similar. And they refer to it, he's even said it is you. He didn't refer to himself. He didn't say me, us. He said you. And there's a logic in this, is that while they're digging this information up, the ultimate change is not going to come from a handful of people. I have been saying this for two or three years now. There is only one way to change this country, and it is us, we the people. It's in our Constitution. It's the fundamentals of what the Declaration of Independence are built around. And it's one of my massive objections to what became hear my words clearly, what became of the Q movement. The awakening was stimulated by the operation of Q, and it led to the obsession of Q rather than the empowerment of the people to stand up and move forward from that point. What Bard's Nation is doing is profound, actually, because what all of you are part of, what we're all part of, is empowering the individual and working together to stand up in our communities and lead. That's how we change this. And it's going to take a vigilance and a persistence 
on all of this, and all of it in the end is going to be umbrellaed and driven by God. Very important. We have to put our faith first, and we have to have the drive to never, ever give in or relent. And we have to remember some very important words in the Declaration of Independence. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for the future security. If you have any questions of where we are right now, re-listen to this interview, watch the films, pay attention. We have arrived at total tyranny. And they're moving as quickly as they can because they are fearful of the Great Awakening. It is important to understand that we are the only country in the world, to my knowledge, and I think possibly the only country in history, to my knowledge, that in its founding document, the Declaration of Independence, we were instructed by our founding fathers to be prepared for a future point when we, the people, would have to remove the government and reset that government back to the ways of the founding documents. It wasn't just given to us as an option. It was directed to us as our duty. Get that clear. It is important to understand that why the Declaration of Independence is often attacked by the left as not part of our founding documents. This document is an official first document of the United States. It is what set us in motion. It was passed by the Continental Congress. It is the rules of the road for the citizens of the United States. Be clear about that. Going forward, we are going to have to make some hard stands and hard decisions. And the one thing that Juan is exceptionally clear about, which is reinforcing everything I've been saying here for months, 2020 has to be fixed. 2022 is just a comedy show. It's an absolute clown show if you think anything's going to change. We have to fix 2020, and we cannot let 2022 proceed. It is that simple. Our mission is clear. It is a tough one, but we have to mobilize as much as we can, use every bit of information resource to awaken America, and to get people to understand that if we go through that gauntlet on 2022 without a massive resistance, and we allow this to go, allow 2020 to go unresolved, we are done as a nation. We are over. And from there, I can't tell you where things will go. Patriots, let's pray. Father, we come to you tonight and after a very heavy contemplation about our nation. We're blessed by all that you give. We're blessed by all of the reminders you give us, including what's happened these last few Supreme Court decisions on the power that you are working with us and through us to transform this nation. But we are also not being idealistic about this. We understand that the path ahead is going to be tough, that as we climb truly that narrow gate to reset this nation as it was intended with you on the throne, then we are going to have to sacrifice and put ourselves forward in ways perhaps we'd never conceived. Father, we are dealing with an absolute darkness that has settled in on every aspect of our culture and on this land which you entrusted us to take care of, steward, and manage. They have stolen it. They have raped it. They have pillaged it. They have done untold damage and horrors to people and this land. 
Father, we pray for justice. We pray for healing. We also pray for the resolve of the warrior to ensure that we never bow, we never bend, and we continue to pursue relentlessly until the day when this evil is completely purged from this country and ultimately the world. Guide us, Father, in this quest. We say these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. No more room for pew marshmallows. I'm telling you right now. This is real, and it's going to take a hard resolve for all of us to get through this. We will win this. We will get through this. But I'm not going to sit here and paint it up with all sorts of happy frosting and sprinkles. It's going to be a tough row. And now I hope as this settles in with people, we begin to understand the mantra that I've been on for two years. Why county by county is so important, not just from the vote, but from the security of our nation. Each one of us has to get involved in our counties to build community to reset this nation from bottom up. Patriots, I'll be back tonight. Until then, keep your head up and your eyes forward. Never bow to evil. Never relent. Always press into the fight. Keep your prayers up. God is with us on this whole thing. He will never forsake us. And in the end, God will win. But he has us here in this time, in this place, for just such a time as this. We are at war. Walk boldly and fearlessly with Christ. Occupy the land. Expand the kingdom. Mission forward. Patriots, I'll see you in a bit for Fishers of Men. Until then or until the next time. God bless and out for now. We shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. Every thoughtful citizen who despairs of war and wishes to bring peace should begin by looking inward, by examining his own attitude towards the possibilities of peace. Too many of us think it is impossible. Too many think it is unreal. But that is a dangerous, defeatist belief. It leads to the conclusion that war is inevitable, that mankind is doomed, that we are gripped by forces we cannot control. We need not accept that view. Our problems are man-made. Therefore, they can be solved by man. And man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable. And we believe they can do it again. Surely the opening vistas of space promise high costs and hardships as well as high reward. So it is not surprising that some would have us stay where we are a little longer to rest, to wait. But this city of Houston, this state of Texas, this country of the United States was not built by those who waited and rested and wished to look behind them. This country was conquered by those who move forward, and so will space. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept. The energy, the faith, the devotion, which we bring to this endeavor, 
will light our country and all who serve it. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. only one intent, to destroy God's light and to enslave. It has no scruples, it has no rules but one, to win at any cost. But we will never bow, for we are the remnant that will hold the line. This is war. We fight. We push. We climb. We never give in. We become the nightmare that evil didn't know could exist. We pray. We stand. We live by the words, in God we trust. We fear nothing. We are the light that can never be extinguished. We are patriots. We are the digital army that will help deliver God's wrath. <laughs> 